This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. And John Alexander is back with us, and I think it is his fifth time on Dreamland. And uh, we have been friends for a very long time, John and I. And we go back too far, my friend. Many um, decades. <laughs> exactly, decades. Anyway, uh, I, I want to just, uh, before we go on, folks, next week, Dreamland has its annual two-week special year-end show. Uh, on it will be Yuri Geller, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, Jimmy Church, and me. And we should have a lot of fun, so look forward to it. It's always a great show. John, I'd like to welcome you back to Dreamland. It's exciting to have you here. The last time we were together was, I think, uh, uh, in October, when we talked about John's book, Reality Denied. And since then, I have finished my book, Them, which is a discussion of the visitors from a completely different new standpoint, uh, not as uh, aliens and not as really any definite thing, but uh, rather an examination of their personality and their approach through their approaches to us both and our, our reactions to them both in individual situations and in the military. In that book, I discuss a document that I received from, um, belief from, I didn't receive it. No, I found it actually on Richard Dolan's website. I knew about it. I knew about the meeting that was discussed in the, is recorded in the document in part, the meeting notes that are there, because, uh, I had talked about them with Edgar Mitchell some years ago when we, uh, uh, meeting we had at, um, Lawrence Rockefeller's estate in uh, South Carolina and with John Mack and Lawrence and Ann. And, uh, and that was that meeting came up and was discussed. And you're listed as being in the meeting. And what it is, is an attempt to figure out where to look in the within the intelligence community for information about what people know and what has been, uh, what was being done, if anything, about the whole overall overarching UFO question. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that meeting insofar as you remember it and if it led anywhere? Well, first of all, that's seriously misleading. And I understand, I mean, there's, Tons of stuff on the internet, and I always warn people: be careful what you what you see there, and people think they know. Actually, there were a series of meetings uh, that were held. They were at the uh, TSSCI level, and top secret, a special, and, and uh, we uh, held them uh, actually physically at uh, BDM. Um, this went on for a number of years, uh, which you described as the intent was, yeah, to sort of figure out uh, what was going on. It was literally an old boy network. 
and that there weren't any women. Uh, yeah, but that was because we had to know who you were and what the organizations were, of course, to hold the clearances, be able to pass them, and then to, uh, you know, discuss uh, what was going on. Our, our premise was literally the, you remember the last scene, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that uh, somebody had found something that they had looked at it, figured what the hell beyond us will put it away and come back and decades later, half a century or whatever, and see if we can uh, figure it out. Of course, what we found was uh, quite different. Uh, now, one of the ground rules, and we should mention that's what surprised me a bit about the papers, so I have learned about them, was no written records. And the reason for that is FOIA, or the Freedom of Information Act had just come into vogue. And what they never expected that was to be inundated by requests for UFO data. I understand at one time, half of the FOIA requests that came in literally were UFOs, although obviously there was a wide range of things from the government uh, that needed to be disclosed. Uh, but in, uh, I admit, uh, in order to evade the FOIA request, we said no written records. Now, I understand that uh, I think Oak Shannon and Jack Houck, who were two of the participants, uh, violated that. And somehow over time, their written records, when they went back to their respective organizations, uh, then migrated uh, and are now generally in the public domain. So <laughs> that's how that information got there. But the, that would be a snapshot of several meetings that happened. Uh, Edgar, who was a personal friend like with you, uh, was not included uh, in that at that time. I think he was still, I forget when he actually retired from the astronaut corps, but uh, I did not meet him until several years later. And as you know, we were on the uh, NIDS uh, Science Advisory Board together. Now, I think it might have been through his association with NIDS that the documents ended up in his hands. Um, I, I'm, I'm just guessing wildly here. I, I don't know. But when we discussed them, the tone of the discussion was interesting. And I think it'll interest you th that the problem with the whole system is exactly that. It's pencils up. That there's so many of these meetings are held without a record being kept. In fact, uh, when General Exxon and I discussed in 1988, this whole thing, he said he was still returning to write Pat in that in 1988 fairly frequently to be in discussions because so much of what they had done in the early days was never written down, and he was he he was using his memory. Unfortunately, not five years later, his memory failed and he got Alzheimer's disease, but. Uh, yeah, but in any it case, nasty, nasty indeed. Yeah, 
I think the two of us are hopefully too old to, to start with that. And you don't certainly have it. And I don't think I do either. Anyway. No, but, uh, and this is a, is a digression, but a warning to folks. My mother-in-law died with that. And we watched the degradation over time. And it is just devastating to watch and be involved in. Oh, yeah. In any case, uh, the the... The fact is that this pencils up issue means that as this material emerges more in various ways, either officially, semi-officially or unofficially, it's going to be very hard for historians to put a picture together. And what are we going to, is there anything to be done about that? I don't know. Uh, the reason some of it came to light, by the way, was that uh, I had held the two or three meeting of the Lieutenant Colonel, uh, at the time, had done this ad hoc without telling my bosses or anything. I want to be clear, this was not a top-down driven sort of thing. And many people think, well, the hierarchy did it. No, no, we, this was bottom-up. Uh, and finally, I had a three-star boss down the corner and said, oh, and then I had to say, well, I need to confess something that... Um, you know, we've been holding these meetings. I don't want the first time you hear it to be in the Washington Post, uh, which everybody <laughs> feared. And he said, gee, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I think we ought to tell our four-star boss who was down at the other end of the building. Who similarly said, yeah, interesting, just keep me apprised and let me know if I can help. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, folks, by the way, we have reached the first break. And you know something interesting about Unknown Country and Dreamland? Unknown Country's website activity has grown more than 300% in a year. And Dreamland's listenership is burgeoning. But one of the things not changing is the number of subscribers we have to support this thing. And I don't want to go to advertising. I really don't. So step up and put your five bucks a month out and and, advert, and uh, get cracking with uh, being a subscriber. And if well, you are support. a subscriber, please. What you're looking for is support. Um, you know, that it takes effort to do these sorts of things and resources. This is not a free enterprise. That's for sure. Okay, Free Dreamlanders, we'll be right back. We're talking to John Alexander, his website, johnalexander.com. His most recent book, which we discussed on Dreamland last year, is Reality Denied. And it's an interesting book indeed. It's got some of, John's a good storyteller, and it's got some of the most interesting stories in it. And John, why don't you tell us a little bit? Let's get into Chris Bledsoe and your relationship with okay. him for a little bit, if we could. Yeah. Well, I would remind the audience the subtitle is Firsthand Experiences with Things That Can't Happen But Did. And <laughs> right. So, right. a wide range of, of topics. First chapter, of course, Skinwalker Ranch. The second one is uh, Chris Bledsoe, and that is an evolving story. It uh, certainly has not ended. Uh, I, Chris had had, I think, I believe it was 2007, a terribly, terribly complex case 
where he's down on the Cape Fear River, uh, sees uh, UFOs, has missing time, he's abducted, son gets chased, they go home, uh, and the situation continues. He lived in uh, North Carolina, just south of Fayetteville, and what they were uh, doing is he looks out and sees an entity outside his window. Now, he lived on a fairly large area, about a five-acre thing, and he goes outside, and whatever this thing is, it chases him, and finally he turns around and says, okay, you got me, and so he's got a telepathic message that says, you don't understand, we're here to help. Didn't know what that meant. About that time, Chris Jr. showed up, Entity disappears. Next morning, uh, about getting close to noon, he finally says, gee, I haven't taken my medicine yet. And he had had Crohn's disease for many years prior to that. Anybody familiar with Crohn's knows it's terribly debilitating. Uh, You know, need to know where uh, all the rest facilities are and have quick access if you need it. Uh, but the point is, to this day, he has never taken another pill. Now, the story goes on, and I might mention that uh, Chris has a book that's coming out called UFO of God. It's going to be out uh, one March, uh, available now on uh, Amazon for pre-order, where he tells the story. And, and literally, to describe it, takes hours And that was my first interview with him. However, so I had interviewed with him, and then my wife and I went down to visit and see this. So we went back to the original site on Cape Fear River, and it's getting early evening, uh, but still sort of light, and went down to the river, and we came back. My wife, Victoria, was with me and his daughter, Emily. So they're sitting in the back seat of the car. And um, uh, Chris and I are near the left front bumper. We're talking about this and that. He's telling me where things happened. And all of a sudden he goes, oh, I think they're here. And with that, within a few seconds, this thing pops into view above us and goes zipping off. That was the second time ever that I've seen anything related to a UFO. But the point was the temporal relationship between him saying, I think the sighting or something, they're here, and this thing coming into view and zipping off. And we have remained friends uh, ever since. I might say the phenomena have not stopped. They are continuing. Uh, I might mention there is a program, a, a new it's going to be, I think it's uh, Beyond Skinwalker Ranch will be uh, airing next summer. And uh, Chris will be one of the features, I think the last one that's featured there where we're going. But the point is that this is where we get into the orb uh, phenomena. And this is, like I say, ongoing and morphing as we speak. Okay, so, you know, you, you, you tempt me to say 
let's talk about the orb phenomenon, which I think has got to be the next subject. So tell us, you know, you're, we're going to get folks, we're going to get more deeply into John's vision of what UFOs are and the whole uh, uh, relationship between the dead and the whole phenomenon in a little later. But it, let's talk about orbs for a bit. Uh, why don't you give us some ideas about how that comes in because of Chris Bledsoe and then what it, it comes to mean to you? Well, uh, an early slide in all of my briefings that I give is, what do you mean by a UFO? And that is because we have orbs and little balls of light. We've also got hard craft, you know, a mile or two across and these thousands and thousands of variations in between. But what is interesting in the orb phenomenon, this is something that has come up with him and now some other people who are uh, interacting. But he feels that there is some sort of telepathic or psychic communication that does take place. We also know that this is probably spiritual in nature and that probably frightens some uh, people as well. Uh, but let me tell you about an incident that did happen. Like I say, Chris sends me every few days, I get new uh, videos where he goes out in the backyard and sees these orbs flying on. It's fairly close range. I mean, we're not talking, you know, lights in the sky. And you can't predict it. Uh, most interesting, some of them uh, actually inside of buildings. Uh, but he seems to have this telepathic communication knowing when they're there. And he had mentioned that uh, when I talk to him, tend to appear more. Now, I'm in Las Vegas. He's in North Carolina. So in October, uh, I gave him a call, and it was late afternoon here, dark in uh, North Carolina. And so he went outside. Uh, and as he's taking his camera with him, but we're talking on the phone. So the phone conversation continues and he starts seeing orbs and describing. Now, what's interesting about that to know that it can't be faked is on the video, you can hear us talking on the phone. So we know that it's happening in real time and watching these uh, things go up. There are some that feel that there's an attempt at communication. I've done uh, what's not going to be an afterword for, for the book and says maybe we're looking at the beginning of interspecies communication. That, and some of them feel that there's trying to be some sort of interaction uh, between the sides. Now, what's missing, of course, is a Rosetta Stone. Don't know what they're saying. But it's clear that there's, uh, you know, like some sort of mental or telepathic communication where he's aware of them and they seem to be aware of him and some other people. So this is interactive on a larger scale. You know, I think the telepathic communication is the whole key here and that we have trouble hearing it. Because, you know, again and again in my own research, in fact, into the letters, the communion letters that we, we got, which I have been researching for my book, for them, uh, you see that 
when they are in closer proximity to us, we can communicate with them telepathically, or they can with us, I should say. Is this, do you think that there's any evidence that this may be a latent human ability that we could somehow regain? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not, you had mentioned, you know, we're, this gets into post-mortem communication and things like that as well. And that's what mediums are basically doing is communicating with discarnate entities or some form of telepathic communication that takes place. Their admonition to us is exactly what you're describing is, you know, be still and listen. And uh, I'm not a good listener, but uh, I keep saying, you know, when somebody just give us the damn message, we'll go do whatever it is that we're uh, supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> why, why do they pussyfoot around like this? Yeah. It's driving me crazy, too. I think it is all of us because, I mean, for that matter, why don't they declare themselves in some definite way? But they never seem to. Could it be that they don't know they're not doing that, that they think they are? And we just don't get it? I'm not sure. Uh, we're getting some terribly complex issues of what is consciousness, the continuation. One of the things I've stressed is we believe that consciousness continues beyond bodily death, beyond all reasonable doubt. Uh, oh, well, yeah. one, of the, one of the questions that emerges is if consciousness continues, does that mean personality uh, continues? Uh, Lots of folks right now, the mediums who are out there having uh, interaction with many of the discarnate entities, particularly those who are known, that come back and give personal details about their life and as well as what's uh, continuing uh, in other dimensions. Uh, but where this, these things, I think, come to, at least for me, is. Uh, you may know I come down against the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, not because the interactions don't happen, but because that is just too simple. It does not answer all of the complex issues and the things that we're seeing uh, across the board. So we're now talking about, you know, multidimensional, interdimensional or ultra dimensional but I do think that there is correlation uh, between all of these issues. So whether we'll understand it or not, uh, that, like I say, we're missing the Rosetta Stone, and I don't know if they don't understand. I suspect they have a better understanding than we do, who are physically incarnate. Uh, but uh, a lot to be learned here. We're going to take another break, uh, Free Dreamlanders. Enjoy these commercials, subscribers. We will keep on keeping on. We're talking to John Alexander, an old, old friend. We go back quite a while, and we have he's been on Dreamland many times. His website is johnalexander.com. His most recent book is Reality Denied, and we are sort of exploring that area, if you will. And we've been talking about consciousness and the survival of personality. And, you know, something this has always interested me is that I have had myself 
and I'm sure most of my listeners, many of my listeners have, and I know you have had astonishing experiences with mediums who knew all kinds of details about your life and, and, and the lives of your loved ones. In my case, very, that they could not have picked up anywhere. It was just amazing stuff. We'll even co-authored with you. <laughs> right. But here is a question. Well, my wife, I mean, is an example, but here's the question. They can't prophesy successfully because if you look across the prophecies of the mediums dating back into the 19th century, it's a hit or miss affair. So what's going on here? They, they don't, they're not all powerful. They don't see the future, but they do try to prophesy. And yet they know us inside and out. Well, that's, I'll, I'll give you a, literally a war story. Uh, my, uh, I was in Special Forces, and as a captain, my, I had a major, uh, Stan Oshevik, who was the uh, B-team commander, and we would talk about these things. And it turns out he was from what was in Czechoslovakia and had become a displaced person or a DP after the war and World War II. And it says in the DP camps, they didn't have much to do. So they spent a lot of time on Ouija boards and doing this kind of contact. And uh, I won't use the exact words, but, uh, you know, he says, yeah, we have this, these contacts and some of them were dumb expletive deleted. <laughs> so, and one of the kind of cute quotes that I heard at a conference one time from people who work with medium say, just because you're dead doesn't mean you're smart. <laughs> That's beautiful. Just okay. But still, oh, wait a minute. I, I must remember to reappear when, I, when I'm talking. I'm not a ghost either. They're a discarnate voice. <laughs> a discarnate entity on the show uh, with a strangely familiar voice. They don't, is it that they can't prophesy? You know, Anne told me that she couldn't see the future very clearly, more clearly than we can, you can, she said, but not all that clearly. And maybe that, but if that's the case, maybe some of them don't understand that and they think they can prophesy. Well, we're also into a conundrum of uh, the issue of, you know, all, the whole issue of time and space, because some are suggesting that, you know, everything is happening simultaneously when you get into the quantum later. So past, present, and future are, you know, coincidental. Uh, having said that, there's others where, you know, we have had some uh, accurate uh, predictions. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, an experiment that you're probably familiar with, but in the whole area of remote viewing. Uh, now, early on, everybody thought it's some sort of electromagnetic thing and whatnot. But when you start into getting into perturbating time, i.e. precognitive or retrocognitive sorts of things, then you're different. Now, there's a, a classic experiment was done by uh, Bob John, who was a dean of School of Engineering at Princeton, and it ran the Paralab. And they had an outbounder remote viewing experience where an individual was going to Europe 
And so they set up the time, and what they did is they had the remote viewers look and say, what will this person see 24 hours in the future? And the point was the individual was going forward, uh, and there were several targets, and the target had not been selected yet. And yet the people recorded accurately what that individual would see. Uh, and, you know, the description came in. It was a bridge uh, in Czechoslovakia. And, uh, you know, amazingly accurate details with questions on how do you perturbate time? And, of course, more interesting to some folks is retrocognition, going back and looking at historic events. Now, we're dealing Ultimately, here with discarded entities, people have passed on. Do they have access uh, to information and what information? Now, one of the things I like is uh, Gary Schwartz, and we ought to talk about Gary's work. But um, he had what he called the dream team of uh, mediums looking out and prognosticating and reporting information. And the point was that some of them you know, sometimes get accurate information. Now, we tend to concentrate on the accurate cases and not so much on, you know, the information that didn't fit. And he used the Michael Jordan uh, syllogy for what, uh, what was happening. And it was, he says, look, Michael Jordan, at the best of his career, shot about 45%. And yet he's revered. And why? Because he's so much better than everybody else. And that's what he pointed to in the mediums, that they seem to have a degree of accurate information that's better now and sometimes proves to be uh, accurate. I don't know. Do you want to go into uh, Chico Xavier? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Certainly we do. Well, uh, for people who don't know, and I reckon you can find the whole story, literally movies about his life. Chico Xavier was a, a Brazilian medium and got to the point where he literally had his own television show. And so uh, he had psychograph. By the way, his life, physical life, was absolutely horrendous growing up. Nothing that anybody would want to endure. Uh, but he was writing books and wrote hundreds of books, millions in print, never took credit for it. He says this stuff was all uh, information that was channeled uh, to him. Now, a few years ago, the University of Sao Paulo did a study on Chico, and what they did, they took information from people who had known to live. So you had accurate uh, writings from them, and then they compared it with the psychographs uh, that were supposedly from the same uh, person and found out it was 98% accurate, and the other 2% just uh, couldn't be determined. Uh, but he wrote books, and he's got several out there, and you look up on the what is the continuation of consciousness and what goes on? Uh, but uh, you know, the degree of accuracy was, you know, in many cases, actually, you know, 
quite, quite profound. Might mention, you know, taking it a step farther, he was actually sued uh, in Brazilian court by uh, for copyright infringement <laughs> by a family of a, of a person who was now discarnate and they're saying, no, you're making money off of somebody in our family. Now, the courts did not hold up, but it did get that far. <laughs> That's a great story. I'd never heard that before. Oh, the first uh, the first time when a lawsuit like that does hold up, it's going to mean the world has really changed. Now, we've been to we we at the beginning of this discussion, we brushed across the issue of whether or not personality survives, and it certainly seems to, in the sense that in my case, I mean, it's Anne said an interesting thing. She said. I'm not Anne anymore, but I will always be Anne for you. Yeah. Can you kind of speak to that? How how consciousness and personality may work together in the afterlife? I don't know how to top what she said, uh, quite frankly. And, and again, in talking to mediums, the information that they put out is directly related to you know, their life, and sometimes have a knowledge of what's going on in the carnate world uh, as well, and current information. And yet there's others that, you know, they say, part of the conundrum, um, you shed all that. You shed the human requirements and, you know, personality, have access to, you know, bigger and more you know, on a spiritual level, that it's all communications, it's all consciousness, and that's a, a leveling process. Uh, what, I, what a, a friend of mine, uh, Evan Alexander, no relative, but I highly recommend his books, uh, where Evan is so significant is that he had been a neurosurgeon for 25 years before he had this extended uh, near-death experience that lasted nearly a week that he was out of it. Um, and he wrote Proof of Heaven and several other books. But his point there was, A, reincarnation is a reality, but there are, you know, kind of orders of uh, complexity that as we you know evolve then you start to understand that but it is literally beyond comprehension but his notion was that when he was in the discarnate state uh, a near-death experience uh, had an understanding where he could integrate that and it would literally be on our ability to comprehend the, the totality of complexity. But the best we can do is just kind of chug along and, and try to make uh, incremental uh, improvements. And to try to understand in some way. And, you know, if we did understand, I'm wondering if the barrier between the living and the dead would fall. And this gets me to the whole issue of the presence, which I think is 
what a lot of us are starting to call what I used to call the visitors and a lot of people still call the alien phenomenon. But the presence seems bigger and a word, a bigger word and more a more useful one in many respects, because there's so much about this that we just kind of don't don't fully get. Um, but well, isn't it that we're you know when you talk to the the message that seems to come out is literally the meaning of life, and that is to experience things here in the physical world in our physical bodies. You know, you eventually shed them and recycle. But it is the growth process on a spiritual nature. And, you know, what do you do? And karma can be a bitch, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, my, I'm convinced that my brother's got a lot of bad karma because all the practical jokes he plays on me. It, just as an aside, folks, I'm going to get him on the show by trying to trick him into talking about Bigfoot, which is his big, big interest. Only I'm going to talk about those pranks. If, if, if we ever get him to settle down and be on the show. He listens to every show, so now he knows this, but that's okay. All right. Now, let me take, let's do this. We, we're just coming up on another break period, so let's take that next break, and then we'll just get on with more. Uh, we'll be right back. Free Dreamlanders. We're talking to John Alexander, his new book, Reality Denied, his website, johnalexander.com. John is a an adventurer of the first order. He has been, and I didn't really introduce you because at the beginning of the show, John, because, you know, I know you so well, and my listeners do too, after these years of being together on the show. But John is a, tell us a little bit about your your life in the military and what you did in terms of non-lethal weapons and so forth. <laughs> well, life in the military. Well, it was 30 some years and actually nearly half a century. If you count the other things that happened after I uh, physically retired, my second career was Los Alamos and then uh, uh, another decade as a senior fellow with the joint special operations university. Uh, I entered the Army in 1956 as a private, said, uh, left college and said, I want to go jump on airplanes. Uh, thought that would be more exciting than going to school. Uh, went to the 101st Airborne, uh, became a ranger. Uh, while there, interestingly, I was a medic. Very unusual as we had a medical company that probably had more rangers than the infantry company. Uh, side issue, then uh, got into uh, special forces, uh, eventually went to, uh, I was a, a sergeant first class and then went to uh, OCS, uh, became a second lieutenant and uh, came back and uh, like I say, various special forces assignments at research and development and uh, uh, also work with the intelligence community, as some of them know. We did a lot of wild and wonderful things, uh, particularly there. Some of you know about remote viewing, of course. Uh, did a lot of work with uh, psychokinesis, 
I heard you mention uh, Uri Geller uh, on the next program. Uri is a longtime friend also, who actually did the foreword uh, for the book uh, Reality uh, Denied. Uh, so I, I had met him, uh, I can say, decades ago and followed his career. Uh, we also worked uh, another one, uh, if you're familiar with uh, Cleve Baxter and uh, some of the work that he did in what he called primary perception, uh, showing that there are connections in consciousness in ways that not well understood. Uh, certainly, you're familiar with the thing on plants talking. Uh, if you want to get into the really wild and wonderful, this is much, much later. But my wife is a uh, ayahuasca devotee. We have traveled around the world to all eight continents and uh, dealt with shamans uh, across the world and some very unusual experiences there, uh, but uh, have dealt with uh, ayahuasca, ayahuasqueros, tabasqueros, shamans, and particularly in the uh, Amazon uh, region. But, uh, and then, as I said, the second career was Los Alamos National Laboratory, and that's where I got into non-lethal weapons. My last assignment on active duty, I was a colonel and was a director of advanced system concepts uh, for the Army. Had basically all the high, very front end, what we call basic science, high technology sorts of things. So continuation had looked at the conflicts that were emerging at the time. We're talking late 80s, early 90s now. Uh, just cause, urgent fury. And you're going, we had developed a military that had and still has overwhelming lethal force. Uh, but my point was that uh, you know, killing is not the objective although we talk about having a, a very lethal military, but you're really, from a global standpoint, looking at it, it's imposition of will is what you want to do, not necessarily killing adversaries, particularly when they have big families with long memories. So looked at the development of a whole concept on using non-lethal force to achieve uh, our objectives. You know, you mentioned Yuri, and uh, who's also been a friend of mine for a long time, and um, a very cool guy. <laughs> I think he's really extraordinary. But I, I want to go a little bit down another road that's related to what he can do and what he does, and that is the Qigong experiences that you talk about in um, Reality Denied. Uh, they were quite extraordinary and they suggest the presence and i'm leading somewhere here folks it's going to be really interesting i think uh the presence of a of a force or a power in the human body i mean i've watched yuri bend spoons uh and, and do all kinds of things and uh, i know about the uh indonesian mystic and called Dynamo Jack, who could do all kinds of bizarre things like that. But tell us about let's the, the, the Qigong demonstration 
in that you witnessed in China, if if you can. I'm not sure which one I've seen. Well, several. how about the one in Taiwan? Maybe in uh, uh, in involving the raising of the plastic balls. The raising of. Okay, I'll I'll keep going. Uh, how about the one in Beijing, at the branch of the Shaolin Monastery? <laughs> You remember that one? Oh yes, that was okay. Uh, there we go. There well, we go. what was interesting on that is that uh, we were there and literally the derivative of the Shaolin Monastery, but they have one in Beijing, and they were we were there with a group watching this demonstration go on, and uh, one of them is they had taken a spear and pressed it against the throat, worked into it, and uh, bit the spear. So as, as we were dissipating, I said, gee, that looks kind of interesting. Uh, can I try that? And um, yeah, I was able to, you know, I'm not sure I really understand how it works. Uh, but certainly the ability of the body to withstand these things. Um, I mentioned this is one in which you obviously have a very organized practice where they work for years and years uh, on doing it. And yet around the world, we have seen people that some of them have these extreme disciplines Others seem to have spontaneous uh, events that allow, you know, things that physically shouldn't happen uh, to happen. Uh, if I can digress, I'll, I'll give you one example is in uh, West Africa and dealing with fire. This happens to be one of my favorite ones because we think we understand the rules of thermodynamics. If you've got something hot, you put your hand in it, you get burned. And yet here we were watching individuals at very close range. I mean, we're talking a few feet away. And stand in fire, sit in the fire, eat fire. Uh, one of the interesting ones, uh, the main guy had a lot of chin whiskers. And you see his whole face just disappear in flames. Um, and yet uh, there's no singeing. And how do you do that? The other interesting aspect, uh, since you mentioned the power, watch him pass the power. Uh, they had two young boys that uh, came out, uh, probably 10 or so years old. And what he does, he takes his elbow and he goes over and taps them on the head and passes the power, and then they seem to be able to do that. Um, again, just have, have seen these things around the world, and it's, as I say, that defies the laws of thermodynamics and the others, the things that we know about physics and conservation of energy, uh, and, you know, yeah, the demonstrations are there. What's What's amazing to me is, yes, these things occur. That's why I said it was first-hand experience with the things that can't happen but did. Why doesn't this move us more? So you had mentioned something earlier. And one of the things I keep hearing, by the way, is 
you know, it's changing, we're evolving and that. And yet over decades haven't seen a lot of spiritual evolution, you know, with the groups. Uh, not sure what it takes for how many individuals, how many times do you have to see the impossible before you say, well, one of my quick quotes to uh, the UFO community uh, who say, we want disclosure. And I said, the problem is they won't take yes for an answer. <laughs> That's so true. You know, Jeff Krapel, my co-author on yeah. Supernatural, has just written a book, which we're going to be talking to Jeff about on the show, called The Superhumanities, that deals directly with the question of why do, are we like this? Why do we, why do we stand in front of this amazing array of realities and pretend it's a brick wall that we can't get through? And, you know, it gets me back to the presence and the thought that it doesn't have a barrier between what we think of as the living and the dead. And there's a story in uh, Kathleen Martin's book about contact about a man who shot one of the entities. In, and the result was it haunted him after that. In other words, it, its body was destroyed but it wasn't destroyed spiritually, and he ended up with a very pissed-off ghost to deal with. Well, uh, let me... I'll inject a real-world thing that people from my profession don't deal with. Um, yeah. Uh, having killed folks, and lots of folks that did it. Remember, I was in Vietnam and all that. Let me tell you, um, very little secret is that, yeah, the dreams follow. And one of the things I mentioned, particularly the war on terror, that we have no idea uh, what the true cost of that is. I don't mean just in dollars and cents. Well, that's an incredibly provocative statement. You have to say a little more. We don't know what the true cost of that is. Where are you going? Or where will either go a little farther with that or just riff on it, if you will, depending well, on how you want to no, do it. What I'm talking about there is direct and physical and psychological, now familiar sort of with PTSD and, and whatnot. Um I would argue it is far more prevalent than, you know, many of us have integrated uh, pretty well. Personal experiences that, yeah, sometimes they come back and visit. And uh, it's, <laughs> you know, you've got to integrate that into the real world. Now, from a spiritual perspective, and that's a whole no, number of level of uh, complexity. Maybe you have to do those sorts of things. If we believe in karma, you know, are these lessons that have to be learned and relearned and debts paid? Um, one of the things I try to remember to do when we're together, John, and this is because this is such a meme in, still to this day in the world of conspiracies, and that is the... Uh, 
William Cooper book, Behold a Pale Horse, has in it some discussions of you and me and Dick Hoagland and, and includes a letter, a, quote unquote, activating me and Dick, uh, signed by you. And uh, we've discussed this before, and you pointed out that the letter, first, obviously, it's a forgery. And second, it is um, obvious that it is a forgery because of the fact that your rank on the letterhead is not the rank you held at the time the letter was written. And do you, it, we've never had, I just want to make this very clear, folks. We've never had any kind of clandestine or uh, or sub sub rosa relationship at all and i don't think dick oakland and you have either and so i just want to point out i don't want john doesn't have to you have to necessarily say about we have had dinner together does that count yeah we did we've had dinner together more than once and uh we we had fun i gosh i still remember the time you came and stayed with us in san antonio when you were uh uh uh, uh, working with, with uh, Southwest Research on that friction-free surface. Well, great, great barbecue in New Brownsville. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But we never did that. It was never anything. There's never, there's no, we have no subrosa relationship, folks. I just want to point that out. And now I want to move on because uh, those things are, are, are lies, and I, and I don't know whether Mr. Cooper believed that lie or what his problem was, but there's not this whole world of crazy conspiracies doesn't exist. But something that's really wild that does exist that you are fascinated with, and so am I, is voodoo. And we didn't talk about voodoo the last time we were on the air together. And you have a fascinating, wonderful chapter in it of uh, hearing the Haitian rated drums, and which I have heard too, because I've been involved in a voodoo ceremony when I was a teenager, which was just wonderful fun. I mean, here I was a boy uh, uh, down in New Orleans, and uh, we were we were uh, we went down into the the Delta and went to a, me and a couple of other boys went to a voodoo ceremony and they were loaded up. They were drunk as the skunks and uh, so they got kicked out, but I got to see the whole thing because I was not a big drinker at the time. And uh, it was very moving and very extraordinary. And I'd like you to talk to us a little bit about, about voodoo. Well, we saw that in uh, West Africa, and the, the fire ceremony that I mentioned a few minutes ago was actually part of a Buddha ceremony. But first of all, uh, I think you'd agree, everything that you know or think you know about voodoo, uh, for the most people, if you're getting this from television and movies, is wrong. It is far, far more complex. And voodoo is not just a religion in Africa and these participants. It is an entire way of life and everything. And it's very spiritual uh, in nature. I remember going out with their guides, and this is in Africa, but they wanted to pick fruit. 
And before you pick the fruit, you ask permission to do it. Uh, they also had healing ceremonies. Most of voodoo actually is a very positive uh, sort of thing. Uh, of course, in Africa, the uh, availability of traditional health care is extraordinarily limited. Uh, probably a thousand to one less uh, uh, medical practitioners, not just doctors, but people who practice traditional Western medicine. So these other natural healers uh, have taken over. Uh, I met a, uh, a Buddha shaman, I have a picture of him someplace there, but uh, we're together. Uh, his job was to dream. Uh, literally, his thing was that he would, for his village, uh, his job was dreaming. Uh, what's good? Where do we go? How do things uh, progress? Uh, now, most of this came over from the Dahomean Empire, uh, with the slave trade, and particularly picked up in the uh, uh, you know, Bahama region, uh, in the, throughout the Caribbean. Uh, you find it in uh, Condomble and Macomba in uh, Brazil today. So these spiritist religions have continued. But it's uh, very, very sensitive and, like I say, uh, complete context for the way of life uh, for the folks involved. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it is a reality and the, for them. And you know, I recently read a book called Of Spirit and Water by Maladoma Patrice Somay, who wasn't a voodoo practitioner, but he was a, a West African shaman of the Dagara tribe. And there's another way of living there. And when we get back, I want to speculate together a little bit about the possi some possibilities that might explain some things that if we've got, we, the, the world is littered with, with ruins that we could not create today. The Great Pyramids, Nan Madal, uh, uh, the fortress at Sokhwaman, uh, the platform at Baalbek, etc. And I want to speculate about the possibility that this has the, the fact that these things even exist has not something to do so much with an advanced, a very advanced civilization in the distant past, but a different way of mind. And I think it'll be a really interesting discussion. So Free Dreamlanders, if you want to enjoy that discussion, subscribe to unknowncountry.com and, and stay with us, subscribers. This is going to be a great part of the show. We're talking to John Alexander. He Reality Denied is his new book, and he's a prolific author. He's got all kinds of stuff out there. A fascinating book on UFOs that we've discussed before that takes a completely different view of them than the usual uh, nuts and bolts vision, a much more sophisticated view. And the, the one of John's great quotes is at the on the frontispiece of them. John doesn't know that yet. He he will find out when he gets his copy, signed copy. 
uh, it is that this phenomenon is more complex than we can possibly imagine. I'm paraphrasing, but it's that's essentially the, the what's in the quote. And so we're going to keep on keeping on for uh, our subscribers. John's website is, of course, johnalexander.com. Now, John, I want to kind of delve into powers of mind here. This is, this is, I think, the way to go with this, because there's a fascinating, brilliantly produced documentary on Netflix right now by a, another good friend, Graham Hancock, about the, these, these many things in the past and the implication that there was an advanced civilization that could do things like this. Now, for example, I'll talk about one thing in particular, the platform at Baalbek, which is so huge. I, I read an explanation for how the great stones were moved recently, and it said that they must have been moved using basalt rollers. But there's a huge problem with this. There's two problems. The first is basalt is rather hard, and there's no basalt rollers anywhere around there. But the quarry where the thing was taken from exists. We know where the, we know the causeway that they used. The other problem is there's no indication under the causeway of the existence of any kind of a foundation that would have held the block. In other words, if you had put it on gigantic basalt rollers, the causeway would have would have it, they would have sunk down into the causeway as it, as it exists. So, and uh, Dr. Somay's book talks about powers of mind that could defy gravity. And I'm just wondering if you have any comments on that. I'm not sure that in your, in, I, I didn't see any specific things in your book and in your work in general, but I have a feeling you might have a lot to say about powers of mind. Uh, yes. Um, first of all, I am not a fan of out of Africa, meaning that, you know, man evolved and uh, all the by gorge and, and moved out. And the reason is uh, not just the specific areas that, uh, you know, monuments that you've seen, but you look at the population migration uh, around the world. And what we know, for instance, and are finding out more about is if you look at Central and South America, there were civilizations there that, that were very large uh, that are totally unaccounted for and can't be accounted for out of the migration. In fact, very recently, you may know that... Uh, you know, well, up until recently, Clovis Man was believed to be, you know, the evolution of man here in uh, the U.S. and North America. Very recently, and that's about 12,000 years ago, very recently they come up with sightings and said, whoops, you know, at least double before 24,000 years ago down in southern Texas or things. If you travel throughout uh, well, Central America, particularly Guatemala, 
but and Belize, when you travel along, you see all these hills. Every hill is a temple. And you've got civilizations that must have been in the hundreds of thousands. You go much further south of the Mato Grosso in Brazil and similar things where you find these very large, or what would have been very large population centers. Uh, what we're learning through LIDAR and ground transportation radar and finding, you know, you know, throughout Central and South America, you know, extensive uh, irrigation systems and roadways and things. You go like, where the hell did that come from? How, you know, what was the population that was supported? How did they get there? And I don't think we have any good answers for that. The powers of the mind, I am reminded of a, uh, a saying one time, in the days when men could sing a song and fly. And this got is more with uh, both mental and acoustic vibrations, but the ability to move very large objects uh, would explain how you can get them up and put them in a place so you can create things like the Lord's Pyramid. I, I've been throughout uh, Central or South America in some of the areas in Peru, the ones that you've mentioned. I sat in a chair in Saxasso Holland, and yeah, I'm I'm not that big, but my arms are up in this, and you know, it's a stone chair, and feet don't touch the ground. You say, who were these things built for? You know, we just don't, and I don't think we have a very good grasp of history yet. <laughs> yes, I I would agree with you that we've 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 actually lost our history. I think something happened to us. Something happened in the past. And and we don't understand what we were. Uh, for example, it took 500 years to build Stonehenge at a time when the British Isles had a population of about 30,000 people. And they worked on it for 500 years. <clears throat> it's not something we can do now. Or the same thing as it with uh, Gobekli Tepe. It took a thousand years to build all of the dolmens, most of which have never yet been uncovered. And then another thousand years to bury them. That is, did you, this is actually to this day, the most long lived human enterprise that we know. And it started 12,000 years ago. And John, can you just speculate on what is missing? We, we, we're not like that anymore at all. We don't do those things. We can't build things like the platform at Baalbek, or let alone the huge basalt logs at Nan Madal. And if you go into the National Geographic website, you find them saying that they were brought there by canoe. They weigh tons and tons. There's no canoe ever been built that can carry things like that. And there's no sign of where they were quarried either. And yet th there are all these artificial islands all over the Carolinas. Who were we? 
what did we lose? Just riff on it. I know you don't have any specific answers, <laughs> but you probably, you're one of the most interesting minds I know. And I, I just want to hear what this fascinating mind has to say when confronted with this mystery. Well, <clears throat> actually, the question you asked is one that I now ask of people. If this is more on the reincarnation level, and when I say, who were you? Uh, and I find some people have understanding of prior incarnations. Uh, one of the issues, I think, is that the belief system basically wrong. And I, I mentioned having dealt with shamans all over the world. And in the West, we talk about the real world and the spirit world as if they're separate and distinct. When you deal with shamans, they move seamlessly across these things. Now, where does physicality interact? Um, as you know, I've done quite a bit of work in uh, Brazil, and this has to do again with the belief system. In the West, we have a very mechanistic belief system. You know, we spent billions and billions of dollars looking for the God particle with the assumption that there's some fundamental article, tiny piece, uh, the Higgs boson or muons or whatever, uh, pentaquarks. And if once we get that, then we'll understand how everything fits together as opposed to a spiritual approach or understanding the spiritual world. As I mentioned with voodoo, you know, everything, the world itself is a spiritual connection. I might mention, of course, when you get to the fundamentals, um, Max Planck's quote that basically everything is consciousness. Everything arises from consciousness. Our primary perception is that, you know, mind and brain, the mind-brain duality, it, that the brain creates consciousness. And their suggestion, no, that the physical world actually arises from consciousness. And if you can accept that, then you can start to understand how you have the physical interactions that you're describing that just don't make a lot of sense. Again, in Brazil, what I like there, I, I deal with very high-level people, uh, you know, flag officers and secretaries and people from the government who are very well educated. And they're educated in the Western schools that come from this thing of the physical uh, world, materialistic world, if you will. And yet they can integrate some of the spiritist things uh, that in, in a way that's kind of seamless. We have a great deal of difficulty doing that. Now, when you get into near-death experiences and all the consciousness, what you hear quite frequently and seem to be is that our basic concept of time and space are wrong. And if we can begin to understand that, then maybe we can address you know, some of the multitude of phenomena that you've yet, because these are not unique. It's not like there's one thing, although the white crow would make sense, 
and say, you know, one white crow, all crows aren't black, or one, you know, but these are all over the world we find these phenomena. So why is it that civilization has not advanced more? That's a very good question because, you know, as we discussed at the toward the beginning of the show, we're kind of stuck in the West. We've gone soul blind. And, you know, and we had a, a thousand year religious dictatorship, which is why this happened, basically. Because, I mean, for a thousand years, people were being burned to death for, for being rational and trying to understand the world on, uh, in, a, in a repeatable scientific way. We're stoned today. What? We're stoned today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. this has not gone away. No, it has not gone away. In fact, you and I are both victims of it. I certainly am, and you are to a degree. I think because you know you have a lot more, uh, a lot more uh, bona fides and status than I do. I'm an easy, easier target. But you know they're going to have to deal with uh, a man with some exceptional credentials if they go after you, which they do. Do they do? They definitely. Yeah. Do you do. want to see the scars? Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying you're immune. You know, I, something I've always wanted to ask you about that is irrelevant to the whole question of why this separation has occurred and why we are soul blind and we are uh, 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 we are unable to we're anesthetized to this other level of reality in a certain way and. What I want to ask then is I want to go way back to the early days when uh, you ended up with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross as your your thesis advisor, I believe. Right. And why did you end up with her, of all people? (laughs) Tell us about that, because this goes, I don't think you are soul blind, John. Well, that's one of those serendipitous, out of the blue, study coincidence, if you will. Um, no, I'd been interested and had heard about near-death experiences, and I attended a conference called Life, Death, and Transition that she was running. It was very unique in that probably half of the people attending were in the medical profession, doctors, nurses, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, etc. cetera. Uh, a quarter of the people were like me, just kind of interesting, uh, interested in the topics in general. Hospice was just kind of coming into vogue. And the other quarter were dying. And so very powerful uh, kind of interactions with people who had terminal disease were on short final. And uh, so after the uh, workshop, I I had just sent her a letter that said, gee, that was really powerful. Uh, Thanks. I appreciate it. Normal thank you letter. And uh, I was back at my office at um, Fort McPherson at the time in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was about to get ready to crank out a dissertation just because everybody's got to do one. And I get a call out of the blue 
from Elizabeth's um, secretary and said, Elizabeth is going to be in Atlanta tomorrow and just wonder, she's got a few hours between flights and where days where you could actually go out to uh, the gates and thing that says, and she would like to meet with you. Can you do that? I said, sure. So sure enough, next day, go out, pick her up. We're walking with her bags and things. And, and she says, you know, I probably know a thousand people in Atlanta and I chose you to call and I have no idea why I did that. And I said, well, I thought about it. I think I'm supposed to ask you a question. You know, would you be the dissertation advisor? And she was, oh, yes. <laughs> that, was, that was it. Well, how's that for coincidence? It's not a coincidence. It's something no, else. No, it's something else. By the way, it, one of the things I might add is that the biggest contribution she made, she actually made me change one word in the dissertation that was used throughout. And it pertains directly to what we're talking about here. And that was to change from religious to spiritual. Very, very important change because one of them is a fence uh, of ritual between us and another level of reality. The other one opens a door. That's the difference. So, and you've got that door open and you've taken a, such an interesting journey because the combination of a journey in the, in the world of the military and in the world of the numinous is incredibly rare in this world. Not unknown. You're not the only one I know who's done that, but uh, you've done it to the nth degree. I mean, I think you've taken this farther than anyone I, I, I know in many respects. Well, I, I would suggest Suzanne Giesman. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but a, a medium. That, uh, Tell us uh, about no. her. Well, uh, she is a retired commander in the Navy. Uh, more importantly, that uh, she had been at the pinnacle. She had worked with the, at the uh, chief of staff of the Navy and then was the executive to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And uh, when I first met her, uh, another side story, but anyway, she had, she was showing the pictures and uh, it was in San Antonio a number of years ago. And what she mentioned was, uh, or had the pictures with her, with Bush, and uh, had been to the White House uh, up, to, up to that level, so operated at the highest levels. Um, and I said, gee, I, I noticed that you didn't mention Hugh Shelton's name. And Hugh had been, he, she, he was the chairman at the time and whatnot. And they said, yeah, well, he's, he's asked me not to mention it. No, what happened in, in her case, never had psychic experiences or grew up in a spiritualist world and all that. Uh, she had married a uh, captain. Uh, and after they both retired, we're off sailing, and the captain, uh, Navy captain, had a daughter who was now a Marine NCO who was hit and killed by lightning uh, crossing the tarmac, and so they came back, and what uh, 
Suzanne did is literally became a medium is now one of the top ranked mediums. She's with, you know, Gary Schwartz and whatnot, validated and stuff. Just uh, really an amazing thing. But to go from uh, Navy commander to full-time medium, and I recommend her website. You can look it up. But uh, just quite an, an amazing individual. But that was a you know, quite a transformational uh, experience. Yeah. Can you give, let's, uh, because the listeners will want to look her up. Can you, can you perhaps spell her name? Yeah, well, it's uh, Suzanne Giesman, G-I-E-S-S-M-A-N-N. Or is it G-I-S-E-M-A-N? G-I-S-E-M-A-N? M-A-N-N. Okay, it G I S E M A N N, and I will get to that website, folks, and we'll have a link to it in the show. John, I think we about come to the time we have to say goodbye, uh, or do we have? And maybe we have about ten minutes, actually. I think uh, so. We could go on down a little bit down this this road, and this is a question I have thought I, I would ask you about where where are you now with the whole UFO phenomenon? Because since you wrote your book about UFOs, the Tic Tac and the various other uh, uh, releases of video have taken place. And these are all apparently physical objects. And I know you still stand by the idea that this is essentially not a physical phenomenon. And I kind of do too, because I, I see it as having it's having something to do, as Anne put it, with what we call death, and that strikes me as a phenomenon that is extra physical in some basic way. But what do you make of the physical aspects of this at this point? Well, as you know, in all of my opinion, I have my. One of my very beginning slides talks to a whole range of uh, phenomena from postmortem communication, abductions, and even cryptozoology, uh, but psychokinesis, remote viewing, spontaneous healing. And just say, I think they're all related, and consciousness is a key part of that. Uh, <clears throat> where I am going and probably surprise people. Uh, in my UFO book, I said two reasons to continue. I was looking at it very physically and trying to get a program started. So there's two things. One's government uh, potential threat, and the other is looking at aviation as uh, concerns there. I'm sort of changing, and I don't see it so much as a threat. And I'm not sure the government should be involved. Uh, when you get into it, you say, you know, what does the government bring to the table? Well, a lot of sensor systems and very bright people can do analysis, eh, but also classification. They tend to overclassify everything. In my view, the um, it is just too complex, and I don't think governments deal with complex issues uh, very well. 
we have no expectation that they would explore miracles or things of, of that nature. Uh, I think it was a, a place from the play, but it's probably minor. My approach now, <clears throat> if you're going to deal with it, I would use the Human Genome Project uh, as an example. And in there, you have multiple countries, uh, best and brightest, lots of universities. And the most important thing, of course, is data sharing. And the problem in all the studies I'm familiar with, uh, even in the civilian sector, is everybody wants to hold the data because, you know, knowledge is power. And uh, I don't think that's terribly useful in trying to solve these kinds of complex issues. You know, I agree with you there. And I also think that the long history of basically of pencils up means that each generation that comes along does not know in, within the government, within the intelligence community, and cannot find out what happened in the past. I, I heard Linda Moulton Howe interviewing uh, Chris Mellon the other day, and she asked him about the, um, uh, oh, that, that, that booklet of, that, that is out there that was, uh, that was been proved to have been printed on a, uh, at an Air Force base. And it's about, about what to do to, when, when you are, um, dealing with uh, crashed UFOs. I don't remember exactly what the designation of the booklet is. And she was asking him about that and he couldn't answer the question. And I, and I thought to myself, she's going to think that he's holding back. But the fact is he doesn't know. I had dinner with him a few nights later, in fact, and it came up and he said, I had no idea what she was talking about. And, you know, th this is a very big problem because we haven't been able to advance because secrecy has been misused in a way. It like gets back to the documents that were found in uh, in uh, 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 oh heck, I'm having a senior moment. Uh, the astronaut, uh, 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 Ed, Ed's, Edgar's files. It shows the people who were involved in the meeting trying to figure out who to ask to try to understand what was going on and what any everybody knew, and 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 coming a ba basically against a blank wall. So I don't. I think you. I agree with you. I don't think that this is going to be handleable by the government. I, I don't remember this, as you know, this is a global issue. Yeah, this is not one. This you know, it's not a Roswell or a this or a that. These are continuing to occur and on a global uh, basis right now, and it is terribly complex. Yeah, well, we're gonna we're um, we're gonna do a um, uh, show on the Varhina UFO incident with um, uh, the James Fox. Yeah. It should be quite interesting, I think. And by, by the way, way you, uh, you may have noticed uh, after the people did, but you know, AJ Grovard uh, died uh, within the last week or so. I, yeah, I, I, 
he was one of the key yeah. researchers there and certainly the lead Brazilian. Yeah, I didn't realize that he died that recently. I thought it was about a month, a couple of months ago. Um, I, I, just, a, I just saw it in the last, okay, maybe I'm behind the power curve, but it was very recently. And, uh, yeah, as we get older, young guy. It, 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 time dilates on you when you get older, folks. You'll find out if you're, if you're not in our age group. Uh, and I want to just conclude with the exact quote that's in the frontispiece of them from John Alexander, because I had to paraphrase it earlier when I looked it up. It is this, whatever this is, it is more complex than we can possibly imagine. And I think that's where we leave it, John. And I want to thank you for a great dreamland. Uh, his latest book is Reality Denied. You can find all of his books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all kinds of places. Uh, you can find his life on johnalexander.com. And the website that was mentioned is Suzanne Geisman, G-I-E-S-E-M-A-N-N, suzannegeisman.com. John, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. And as always, it's been a great show and a great deal of fun. Appreciate it. And Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And folks, don't forget, the Christmas special starts next week. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.